Well, welcome back, Harmony, and all those who are listening in. We're still kind of getting a handle on being live uh, from the uh, studio audience here, and uh, we're uh, learning as we go, and I tell you, our tech team has been absolutely phenomenal, and thank you, worship team, for great songs today. Uh, Really, you may have noticed, heavily Jesus-focused, upward-focused, and uplifting. By the way, those of you who are... Uh, tuning in to our sessions, whether it's on Facebook or YouTube and also the Fireside Chats. Uh, if you're part of the family, keep praying for us. You never know who we're going to touch or where it's going to end up. I'm kind of surprised. My last Fireside Chat, I, uh, I did a little put a candle in the window for hope for people that I stole from uh, people up in the neighborhood of Albany, and I've heard now that it bounced back. So shout out to you guys up north that are listening that uh, they've been posting it around with uh, school teachers, what have you, and so you never know to whom the Holy Spirit may speak life through any of that. So we want to ask God to just bless it and bring people to know him and trust in him and rest and maybe have some comfort in the middle of all of this. Also, I want to say, I've told you before, I can't comment while you're Facebooking commenting today. You're all saying hi to each other. I'm not saying, well, I'm just going to say hi to all of you, okay? So hi, and uh, later I get to look at it sometimes. What's the matter? Oh, hi. My, my audience, my studio audience is hiing at me. Uh, so hi to everybody, and thank you for those little comments, and I love it when there's an amen. I get to read them later, and uh, so make sure you don't say anything you don't want me to see, because I may see it and saying hi and amening and uh, catching something that maybe speaks to you is really great. I had a couple that I noticed last week, and I wanted to mention them. One was uh, someone named Sarah. She knows who she is. When I mentioned that God has the right to test the hearts of his people, she responded, he tests us to show us us. I thought that was great, because God knows all about us, so if he's testing us, He's helping us see our own selves, which I thought was great insight. And then a sister, Linda, said this. We want our kids to trust us because it was all about Abraham last week, trusting God in a difficult circumstance, in a time of testing. We want our kids to trust us without question. Why wouldn't God want the same from us? That does make sense, doesn't it? So we're all on a journey. It's, uh, for some of us, hard, for others of us, uh, easier to trust God and walk along in this journey, especially when we are tested. Well, today's passage is the first uh, three verses of the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We're in a series called Better Things, and I'm telling you, the title, Better Things, really ought to resonate today, because if you don't get anything out of this morning, you should get two takeaways Now, I hope you won't say, oh, good, I've heard enough and turn it off now. But there's two takeaways. Jesus is amazingly great. We sang about he is worthy today. And number two, his greatness requires or demands a response. Pretty easy, right? I got an amen from one person out there. Jesus is great and his greatness demands a response. I was driving here today, and I was reminded, even with the roads being quiet, I came to an intersection out in the, uh, out in the, the Thule's there where I drive coming in to, to Middletown area, 
and uh, there was three or four vehicles at the intersection. It was amazing. There's nobody else on the road hardly. All of a sudden, there's this convergence. And as I saw the person across the way, I had the right of way. He had a signal to turn left in front of me, and I stopped. I flashed my lights to give him permission to go. He got the message. He went across the intersection, and then I proceeded on my way. And um, as I often do, I sarcastically said, you're welcome, because I didn't get a single response. Have you ever had that happen when you're driving and you're particularly polite to somebody? You make way for them, and they don't even acknowledge your existence. Small potatoes, not a big deal. But my little sinful nature says, you're welcome. Anybody else out there relate? All right, my point is, being kind to another person, you expect some kind of response. When G- And I love it when people do, when they say thanks. I tell my wife, they said thank you, they said thank you. Like, that's a big special thing. <laughs> it should be normal. When Jesus was on the earth and he ministered to people, a few weeks ago we talked about the lepers who were healed. Ten of them. One came back to say thank you. One came back to worship Jesus and give him the glory that was due him. The Gadarene demoniac, great story, right? In Mark chapter 5, you can read it for yourself. He gets rescued from a ton of demonic strongholds. And when he's done with that, he comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm in. I'm yours. That's my response. And Jesus says, I want you to go home and tell everybody the great things God has done for you. Zacchaeus, the wee little man. No, I'm not going to sing it. The wee little man. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I want to go to your house today. He's so excited that Jesus is going to come to him, his home. He's a tax gatherer. He's an outcast. And, uh, you know, staturally, how, how would you say it, challenged. And Jesus is spending time with him. He's so excited. At one point, he interrupts dinner and says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor. That was his response. A response is appropriate. Look, Lord, you've done so much for me, I want to do something in response. Let me quickly go through my first point, which is just to remind us where we were last week. We already mentioned it was about the story of Abraham, the sacrifice of his son Isaac, which didn't have to happen, thankfully, because God intervened. But Abraham trusted God, and he trusted this one who is trustworthy. Let me show you the verse that closes the last chapter, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. It says this, This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has not gone into the physical temple. He's gone into the heavenly temple, into the presence of God. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he has secured our place there. Didn't he say, I go to prepare a place for you? And if I prepare a place for you, guess what? You're going to come there with me. He has secured it. We have hope in this. We can have assurance if we believe God's word. Jesus priesthood still intercedes on our behalf, and it's better than the priesthood of Aaron. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Then there's a psalm that says, how Jesus, who did not come from the tribe of Levi, technically didn't have the right credentials to be a priest, 
because priests are appointed directly by God. And David, prophesying, who knows the law, knows the Aaronic priesthood, has worshipped in the temple with the Aaronic priests in charge, writes this in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn. By the way, this is the psalm that starts out. The Lord said to my Lord, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David saying, my Lord, the Messiah, God the Father speaking to him, saying, I'm going to give you victory. And he adds this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I wonder how many of us are going, who the heck is Melchizedek? What is that all about? Who ever heard of this guy? Melchizedek, a picture of the greatest priest we have described in the scripture, believe it or not. Jesus has been ordained as a priest. Priests make atonement for sinners and reconcile God to man and man to God. And our master Jesus has done that for us and he's secured the way with his blood. What can wash away my sin, friends? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, of course, we're going to explain it. But that's why we sang this morning, he is worthy and fairest Lord Jesus and all of those upward looking songs that talk about the greatness of our fabulous savior, the Lord Jesus. Well, that brings me to my text for today. All right. Chapter seven, the first three verses. Here we go. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, follow this, by the translation of his name, the hermeneutics of his name. That's literally the Greek word. King of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Let me park there for a second. Let's unpack the meaning of his names. If your Hebrew background allows you to pray like this, Sometimes when I don't know how to pray for my food, that's how I start. Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, Melech Olam. His name is Melech Izedek. Zedek is righteousness. Melech is the word for king. King of righteousness and also king of shalom. We don't know exactly, but probably it's a nickname or a shortened version for Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The prince of peace. That resonates, doesn't it? To remind you of another person. King of righteousness, prince of peace. I think you're starting to connect the dots. Here's the rest of the story about Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning nor an end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually, in perpetuity, forever. And thank you for that comment. Those of you who knew that was from Sandlot, forever. He remains a priest forever. Wonderful. A description. Here's the second thing about Melchizedek. We get his names, but he's also a type. A type is something that God has ordained in true, real history to be a picture of something that's coming. 
David and Solomon were both types of the kingly reign of the righteous Messiah who was to come. Melchizedek is a type of Jesus in his priestly role. For those who have been trained in scripture, you know that Jesus has three roles, right? Prophet, priest, and king. And this is about his priesthood. And it says, not that Melchizedek literally had, he wasn't an alien, he wasn't a clone, he wasn't uh, an angel that showed up. He was a human being, but we don't have a record of his genealogy, either past or after his beginning or his end. We don't have a record. He comes on the scene and he blows out. We don't know anything else. It's kind of like the Son of God coming into the world with no human father. Not like the Aaronic priesthood who had to have their heritage nailed down and clearly recorded. No, this priesthood doesn't have to have that beginning or end because it's directly appointed by God. A picture of the Lord Jesus Christ ordained by God as a priest forever to intercede and rescue his children. By the way, there's little sidebars. I can't take time this morning. People think that he's Seth from the, you know, the the Adamic age from way back then, and uh, some think he's an angel or a manifestation of Jesus. No. If we believe the context here, he has no record of his genealogy. The best explanation is that that's not true. What's the matter? I keep looking at you. Okay, everybody, I'm getting corrected here in the studio audience. I'm looking at you. Looking. All right, this week, now, we've talked about the background. We want to talk about this person who trusted God and what happened in some of his story. We want to look at this response of a true truster of the living God, if you can put it that way. His response of worship. And it goes back to Genesis, the 14th chapter. It's necessary that I give you a very quick reminder. We actually looked at this back in November. But Abraham had a nephew, Lot. You know the story probably. You can read it for yourselves in the book of Genesis. Lot wanted the lush land around Sodom and Gomorrah. You recognize those names. Actually, four city-states, maybe five there, little towns. But they're called cities, and they have their own kings, their own rulers. And he was living in that area. Those kings had rebelled. They stopped paying taxes to the feds. They stopped. And the feds had an appointed man, Kedor Leomer was his name. He gathered up a bunch of kings with him to come down and invade the entire area. So he goes on this large campaign, takes people captive, takes everything they own, and Lot gets captured. And Abraham goes to God and says, this is my nephew, you've got to help me out here. Uh, I need your help. And because he trusted the Lord, he gathers his 318 men and maybe a few neighbors as a small little hit squad. And they chase thousands of soldiers and they annihilate them. It had to be a God thing. And here's what happened. Chapter 14, starting in verse 17 through 20 in the book of Genesis. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That's a story that he wanted to tell Abraham, keep all the, all the spoils. And Abraham said, no deal. Nobody else is going to make me rich, only God. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out wine and bread. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine. And he was a priest of God most high, El Elyon, the highest. We know two names in the Old Testament we have. El Shaddai, 
the Almighty, the completely sufficient one, and we have El Elyon, the highest, because they believe there were other gods. There aren't any, but he's the highest. El Elyon, the ultimate. Melchizedek is his priest. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Now, if you're reading the scripture, you're going, who gave who what? Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. Now, I cannot do justice to this passage and not talk about the response of worship called giving. How can I not? There's a principle here, and you'll notice this is the life of Abraham. The law doesn't come for another 450 to 500 years. This is not legalism. There's a spiritual principle, a pre-law spiritual principle of blessing and worship, of response to that which is greater. I know, and you guys know, I'm very tentative about preaching on giving because most churches have a reputation. All they want to do is get in your pocket. That's not where I'm coming from today. It's in the text, so there. I have to preach it because it's what's there. And also, I want to let you know, I'm not after your money. God doesn't need your money. Oh, everybody's on the edge of their seat now. They like this sermon. Here's the problem. It's not even your money, but that's a whole nother subject. <laughs> he owns it all. And here's, we're talking about a response. And so this, this idea of tithing goes way back into primeval history. Later, after uh, Jacob is born and he's going to be the forefather of all the children of Israel, grandson to his, uh, his grandfather, Abraham, Jacob is on his journey to make himself large. And as he goes out, he makes a commitment to God and says, if you will prosper my way, I will serve you as my God and I will give you a tenth of everything you bless me with. And he followed through and God blessed him unbelievably. Here's the commentary in the next portion of Hebrews chapter seven, verses four through seven. I'm going to comment in the middle. Here's where it goes. Now, observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. I have to unpack that for just a second. What he's saying is they're all children of Abraham, children of Jacob, but one group God set aside, the Levites, and out of the Levites, the Aaronic priesthood, to receive tithes from his people. I want to talk about simple priesthood economics, if I may. Here's how it worked. The children of Israel would take a tithe of everything that they were blessed with. They would give it to the Levites. The Levites then would be well taken care of. If God's blessing was on his people and on their crops and on their herds and everything else, they would be doing well. Then the, the Levites would be doing well, and they would take a tenth, a portion, a tenth, and give that to the priests. So they would all be doing well. If we don't honor God, they wouldn't be doing so well, and then there's a trickle-down effect, as we say. That was the economic system to sustain God's kingdom business, the manifestation of his glory with the temple worship in the Old Testament. That's what it is. Now, in our portion, we're seeing that 
Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's more important than the Aaronic priesthood. And I hope some of us are doing a little math because there's a connection. There is. Let's finish this. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises, the great forefather of the faith, the great one that we claim as our father spiritually. Abraham was the lesser. Without a dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. There were priests in the Old Testament that were appointed by God, high priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. The Aaronic priesthood was commissioned out of the family. And then Melchizedek is this interesting person, directly ordained by God. And Jesus is a bigger deal than Levi, Aaron, or Melchizedek. And if he's a bigger deal, then surely our response of worship should be bigger. Makes sense to me. So here we go. I want to make one brief comment on this. Lenski, the uh, really excellent uh, commentator uh, from Germany, mentioned Melchizedek did not demand a tenth from Abraham. He did not demand anything. He received it when Abraham, recognizing the priestly greatness of Melchizedek, voluntarily brought him the tenth. It was a response of worship. He's worthy. Is he worthy? Yes, he's worthy. And I want to respond physically to it. And he mentions that the tithe and the blessing, they go together. They're connected. You know, God wants to bless us. I know we never believe that, do we? He wants to bless us. He really does. And if the Old Testament had a sustaining method for the kingdom work, the church also has it. If we didn't have a church to be part of, and by the way, every one of you should connect with an assembly. It's only in the context of an assembly that we can really be stretched and grow as disciples. But if we have an assembly, the first order of business is to make sure that assembly's need is taken care of to do kingdom work. This is a no-brainer, is it not? So I'm kind of moving on to my last point, which is to understand grace and blessing. My goal for you, if you're listening and you've never learned to be a steward, that's what it's called, I want you to grow. I'm not trying to get in your pocket. I want you to grow. I may never meet you. I want you to learn how to honor God and respond to the greater priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. But if a church is to function, just do the simple math. If one greater than Melchizedek is here, what is our response to his blessing? I think I've mentioned in the past, I had friends uh, in churches who said to me, I want you to have an evening service in case I feel like coming. People want their church to be open in case they decide to show up. You know, if you were part of a spa and you never paid dues to be part of the spa, when it closes, you have no right to complain. But we don't think that way when it comes to the church, and yet there's a part of the business that has to happen in order to sustain the Levites and the priests and those who do the kingdom work. It's logical. It's sensible. That's the first line of defense. And then from those assemblies, we send out abundance and extra to kingdom work around the world or around the neighborhood or whatever it might be. We call that missions. Hopefully you get what I'm saying. I want to make a couple of disclaimers. If you're at a position right now where you can't put food on your table and you can't pay your bills, 
You ask God to help bless you and get you out of that and figure out when and how and how much and what percentage you want to start learning to give. Your priority is to pay your bills, not to rob somebody who gave you utilities or whatever. Make sure you pay your bills. That's where you start. But most of us are in positions of blessing. By the way, I can't say thank you enough to Harmony's family the way we've continued to be blessed and have our needs met. Thank you that there are solid stewards out there that take honoring the great, greater than Melchizedek master Jesus seriously. It's obvious in your stewardship, and I praise God for that. But I also want to say that this is something that is easy to control and to learn faith by it. I can take out my wallet. I can take one bill out of ten and put it in the offering. It's an act of my will. It has nothing to do with how strong my faith is. And then see what God does to bless me and improve my faith walk as I do it. I think sometimes people have seen bad modeling, even in spiritual leaders, and so they don't follow through in the right ways, if you will. I know that there's some um, people in our assembly that are firm, co- firmly committed to this subject, which is tithing. And I'm not even talking legalistic tithing. I'm talking about a response of faith to the greatness of Jesus. Uh, I won't mention any names, but I kind of miss if my brother John would be in the room because right now he'd be going, amen. And I'd like to be able to say, can I get a witness? <laughs> I would really like to. But it's the truth. Sometimes we see bad modeling. It reminds me of a pastor's group that used to meet for accountability and prayer. And uh, they were talking about, and by the way, you should know this, in some small churches, the pastor is the chief cook and bottle washer. He collects the funds, he splits it up, he does all of that. I never want to do that. I never want to know what people give. I don't want to touch the money. I don't want to know what anybody is doing with their resources as a pastor for a reason. I don't want to be nosy. I don't want to be tempted. I don't want to get angry. None of those reasons. See, I don't want to know. And so I don't. But anyway, in some churches, they have to manage it. And so there's these three pastors who were together and they were talking about how do you handle the funding? How do you honor giving in this context as a servant of God in the church? And so the first pastor said, well, I'm pretty uh, basic. I believe what the Bible says. So everything that comes in on the plate on Sunday, I take 10% of that exactly, and I give that back to the church for its needs. The rest is my salary, okay, because that's a small church context. It's mostly the pastor's salary. Second guy said, oh, well, um, I have a little different system. We have a stairwell with 10 steps in the staircase at the church, and so I take all the money that's in the plate, I grab it all at once, and I throw it up the stairs, and whatever lands on the top step, that tenth, that's God's, and I keep the rest. And the last pastor said, well, I I guess I have more faith in you guys. I, I just couldn't do it that way. I take all the money from the plate, I throw it straight up, and whatever he keeps, that's his. Well, if you've seen anything like that, maybe you've been discouraged and you do have a bad taste about honoring God with your money, but don't let that get in the way of obeying God. You have to answer to him, ultimately, wherever you are. If you're part of an assembly, then bless that assembly. Let me just encourage you with that. Here's the last verse I want to share, and these are the words of Jesus. 
He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? Isn't that interesting? There's tons of teaching on the physical issue of giving in the Scripture. We don't have time for it today. I'm just encouraging you to think about how do I respond to the great one, Jesus. And he said, money is just... It's the smallest issue you can deal with. You have total control over it. How do you honor me with that? That you have to answer for yourself. You have to take that before the Lord and trust him. And I think God wants to lead us way beyond tithing. I personally believe tithing is the baby step elementary school, actually kindergarten of learning how to give. If I'm really listening to the spirit, I think when I look at my money at the end of the year, I look at my giving I've given more than tithing, maybe abundantly more, depending on the context. So I'm going to put myself at risk a little bit here and both invite you into an adventure as well as uh, see what happens. We know that this pandemic is having uh, uh, consequences all over the world, and some of us went to Kenya last year and, and just fell in love with some of those people who are serving the Lord. Pastor Joseph in the little town of Limeru, uh, was a place that we had been, and uh, Bishop Oscar has said they are really going to be suffering because of all the shutting down. So I had it in my heart, and I, I've held off announcing it till today that maybe we can do something extra. Some of us, our needs are being met. If you have your needs being met, that's who I'm talking to. If you're not having your needs met, we can help you with that. Contact us. But if your needs are met, I'm going to invite you to pray and ask God to tell you, what about above and beyond? In other words, I'm already committed. Automatically, a tithe goes to the church. That's not mine. That's God's. But sometimes he puts his finger on me and says, uh, why don't you give something to that? And when I heard about that, here's what hit me. And I hope what I'm saying is a word of faith, because our president said they were going to give me $1,200 in the mail. Did you hear that? Lord, when that check comes, the Spirit said, put the whole thing in the plate for Kenya. That's what I'm going to do. If it shows up, that's where it's going. And if you're having your needs met and you're seeing God, I'm just encouraging you to think about what to do with that as well. If God brings in the extra, we can bless it. It may mean in the little village of Limeru, it may mean the difference between life and death, literally. Does God have permission to poke around and put his finger on things like that in your life? Only you can answer it. But you know what? I think it's part of the normal Christian life because we walk by faith, led by the Spirit, not by law, legalism. So I want to encourage you to consider inheriting the blessing and responding in response however God leads you to go into this adventure of stewardship. If you've never done it, great. If you're doing it, keep it up and ask God to grow you. Okay? God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You can contact us here at Harmony Ministries. Okay? God bless.